Welcome to Wonderland, the podcast where I go down the rabbit hole to research things you may be curious about. My name is Ami, and I'll be your guide on this trip to Wonderland. Hi, and welcome back, my Wonderlings. I hope that you guys are having a wonderful start to the new year. As I thought about what my year might look like this year, I gave considerable thought to this podcast and how I do it. As with any creative project, it grows and changes as I grow and change. To help me achieve some of my personal goals this year, I'm introducing a new format for some of the Welcome to Wonderland episodes. Instead of me researching a topic and writing what essentially equates to an essay every two weeks or so, I thought it might be interesting if for some of the episodes, I spoke with other people who are knowledgeable or passionate about a subject that we might be wondering about. So this year, look for a mix of these two types of episodes. For my first episode in this new feature format, I'm speaking with someone whose voice you no doubt recognize if you listen to this pod regularly. My best friend, Barrett Gruber. Is this where I say hello? This is where you say hello. Okay. <laughs> hello. All right. So this is Barrett. Um, the difference uh, in you reading versus just speaking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Leave me alone. All right. Sorry. Uh, uh, so Barrett is the host of the All About Nothing podcast, uh, which you guys know that I speak about regularly. And what the pod is that? And what the pod is that, which is a funny little podcast where they watch TikTok videos and then uh, he and Zach and Carrie kind of comment on them. Yeah. We we send ourselves uh, straight to the bad place. <laughs> Uh, and so as I kind of thought about this new format that I wanted to do, I knew that the first one had to be with Barrett. Um, he's obviously such a natural on the mic and oh, owns the equipment yeah, and he owns the equipment. So, <laughs> so here we are with Barrett. Um, and I think what we're going to do is we're going to wonder. I 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 wonder. All right. So you may be wondering what it is that we're wondering about today. And it's voting. So this is what Barrett is passionate about. Yeah. One of one of one of things that I'm passionate about. Yeah. So uh if you follow Barrett on his social media or all about nothing on their social media, you'll regularly see posts and little tidbits about, hey, don't forget to vote. This is where you can go to vote. I actually think your website has a link to help people register to vote. Well, yeah, the, the allaboutnothing.com slash voter. You can check your voter registration. And if you aren't registered, then you can you can actually go ahead and register to vote through it's a national website that that does the check uh but we don't actually retain any of the data that you put into it it all uh it, it basically just goes into the the registry and it verifies your registration and then and then you can uh you know if there's an issue with it now's the time to update it so all right so um this will be a little different than the way i usually do things um i did do a little bit of research just the tiniest little modicum of research so that I wouldn't sound stupid next to you. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I do vote. I actually help Barrett at the precinct, uh, the, yeah. the voting precinct, but I don't know all that much about voting. So we've got Barrett. I did learn that the first time or the first documented instance of voting for a way of government uh, dates back to ancient Greece as early as 508 BC. I actually would have thought that was earlier. Or you mean further back? Yeah, than? yeah, like earlier than that. Like, yeah, I guess I don't know. I, I I hadn't really given consideration to how 
how early voting started, um, only because when I think of voting, for the most part, my mind tends to just stick to the the modern. But yeah, because uh, the Greek and the Romans had uh, their their elected officials, the Senate. Right. Right. Uh, so. Yeah. So, and then bringing it across the pond over here to the United States, obviously, uh, we elected George Washington in 1789. And and I asked. I asked the question, did we actually, was that an open election or was that just? It was an electoral college election. Okay. Right. Um, I did look that up. So, um, but even before, because I honestly, what I Googled was when was the first election in the United States? Um, and it kind of got me there. But then uh, Native Americans were voting well before we got there. Interesting. Uh, th- there are documented instances of Native Americans um, voting on, like, tribal elders and various positions of authority throughout the tribe uh, as early as 1500. Yeah. Wow. Um, And women played a large part in that. Um, Up until 1789. (laughs) Uh, Right. So, but uh, 1789, we elected George Washington um, using the Electoral College. Uh, I was a little surprised. I was trying to figure out who was running the United States in the time after the end of the Revolutionary War and 1789, because that that's not the same time. Um, My guess is that because the states weren't necessarily it wasn't it wasn't a unified country at the time. Uh, my guess is that the states were pretty much being run by their governor. They had governors and and town councils and things like that 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 took care of that. Well, at some point they decided we needed like a, a federal government. So um, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today specifically is our federal government, our state government to some degree and voting and how that all works. So let's start with who can vote. So in the United States, uh, anyone over the age of 18 that has that is a citizen of the United States, whether they're born in the United States as a natural citizen or they're naturalized by becoming a citizen, uh, can vote in an election. Uh, that excludes anyone in most states that have a uh, felony conviction uh, that, that that prevents them from being able to vote. So I actually did look up some things on felony convictions. Let's see if I can make this big so that I can take a peek here. Um, I know in the state of Florida, they had passed legislation to allow uh, felons that had served their time to completion uh, or had been given some sort of uh, 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 the governor had had granted them clemency uh, that they would be allowed to vote, but I know that that was then uh, done away with uh, before the 2022 election. So uh, this is the National Conference of State Legislatures, um, NCSL.org, um, but kind of a high level overview. So in the District of Columbia, Maine, and Vermont. Felons never lose their right to vote, even while they're incarcerated. So they can still vote while they're in jail. Um, In 23 states, felons lose their voting rights, but only while incarcerated and receive automatic restoration upon release. Uh, It says to note in Maryland, convictions for buying or selling votes can only be restored through pardon. So like if your Uh, crime has to do with voter fraud, then the the governor, I guess, has to say, all right, it's okay. You you did your time. You can vote again. Yeah. Who Just, was it? Who was it you voted for? <laughs> who who did you who did you rig this election for? Oh, me? Oh, sure. Why not? Uh, in 14 states, felons lose their voting rights during incarceration and for a period of time after, usually their parole or probation period. Yeah. Um and then after that their vi- their rights are restored. 
Um, they may also have to pay fees and restitution before their rights are restored. So it kind of depends on, I guess, what they did again. And then uh, in 11 states, felons lose their voting rights indefinitely for some crimes and require a governor's pardon for voting rights to be restored. And then they've got an additional waiting period after the completion of their sentence. And uh, yeah, so there's there's a big long list and it kind of goes through all of that. Um, but yeah, so largely if you're a felon, you can vote asterisk. <laughs> yeah. So after after your rights have been restored, after you've served your time right. or been living clemency so that and and ultimately i think that's you know you're still a citizen of the country you're still paying taxes uh ultimately i think that that having your rights restored after you've paid back your debt to society yeah that's i think that makes the most sense so um you said 18 was the minimum age and the maximum age is there is no maximum age i don't think is there Uh, i didn't actually death i assume (laughs) I, and I have to assume so. Um, I think Michael's grandma still votes, and she's a hundred now. So uh, this is not like a Lego situation. Yeah, again, I think it's a it's a situation where if you are paying taxes, the United States was from the beginning always very heavy on the idea that if you pay taxes, you're you should be you should be represented, and that representation is uh, a symptom of voting. So. That is a nice little leeway into, I want to talk a minute about women and their right to vote. Um, and I think that it's relatively common knowledge that women in the United States have not always been allowed to vote. Um, we've got the 19th Amendment to to thank for that, which was around 1920. But I did learn that there were some situations where women were allowed to vote before 1920 oh, and okay. the suffrage, mo- suffrage movement. Um, so basically, it had, and it has to do with tax paying. So um, if a woman's husband had passed and she was widowed and now she is paying the taxes on uh, the property. In 1838, Kentucky legislature agreed that widows and unmarried women who own property subject to taxation for school purposes, that's specific in it, would be allowed to vote in elections relating to schools. Always with the limitations. <laughs> oh, no, it was definitely limited, but it wasn't nothing. Yeah. Um, and then there's a, a nice little map that kind of goes through and shows when, as far as the women's suffrage movement goes, when the different states were allowing what level of voting. And that specific clause was an early one that even before full rights were granted, they were like, okay, well, I guess if you're husband passed away and you still own this land and we're still collecting taxes on it and you uh, have to do with the school system then i guess you can vote on things that have to do with the school system yeah it's i i think that it's crazy that it took finding little uh little reasons for why to keep women from voting kept degrading over time to the point where Obviously, the Constitution needed to be amended and then ratified throughout the country in order for women to to finally be allowed to vote in 1921. And it wasn't even all women then. So yeah, that yeah. Well, um, okay. <laughs> so sorry, white white women. Right. So, uh, and guys, I will post the links to a lot of this um, research, these articles that I was reading on this. So it wasn't all women, and even some of the women who were heavily involved in making sure ultimately that white women got the ability to vote in 1920 um they themselves were not white um one of the biggest activists was a native american woman who was not allowed to vote so i've got some some additional information here on that um 
And there are a lot of different reasons that were given for why Native Americans couldn't vote. One of which was if they lived on a reservation, then that wasn't American land. <laughs> well, and and I think technically it's still not considered to be American. You know, it's not the United States. Those are uh, a lot of the Native American uh, reservations are considered to be their own nation. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, it's not that way anymore. You can you can vote in reservations. Yeah. Know. So and it's not um, just Native Americans who are being suppressed with the uh, the voting. So uh, other people of color. So um, originally. Black people, African-American people, should have been able to vote after the 15th Amendment in 1870. Right. So the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So, I mean, that seems plain and simple. They should be allowed to vote, right? Right. But that wasn't the case. So um, it wasn't until after 1965's Voting Rights Act that um, people of color were allowed to vote. And they had some really sneaky, you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. They had some really sneaky ways of suppressing the vote, of making it so that uh, African-American people who had been freed, who were no longer slaves, and then even generationally after that, still couldn't vote. What were some of those? Well, you have uh, literacy tests uh, where uh, a, a an individual that comes up to uh, mark their name to say that they're voting, uh, they would selectively be chosen to, to perform a literacy test. Uh, and if, if an individual could not read the statement or read whatever it was that, uh, that the poll worker at the time was trying to, uh, basically it was, a, it was a form of voter suppression. Literacy tests are, uh, are a form of voter suppression. There was also poll taxes. If you couldn't afford to actually pay the poll tax, then you would not be allowed to vote. Uh, that was that was another form of, of suppression, despite the fact that the Constitution now allowed for everyone to be able to vote uh, in a lot of southern states. Uh, there were there were uh, limitations put in place to try and prevent uh, some some individuals, uh, in this case, African-Americans here in the South, uh, from being able to vote in these elections because. Uh, there was enough of a population that it could have turned uh, the direction of those uh, elections. So I actually came across a pamphlet called What a Colored Man Should Do to Vote that was circa 1900. Um, and this is the section. It's got basically for each state what's needed. Um, this is the section for South Carolina. So must reside in the state two years and in the county one year and four months in the polling precinct must be registered, and in order to do so, must be able to read and write any section of the Constitution submitted by the registrars, and if unable to read and write, must prove to the satisfaction of the registrars the ownership of $300 worth of property in the state, upon which all taxes for the previous year must have been paid. All poll tax must be paid six months before election, and tax receipts showing the payment of all taxes, including the poll tax, shall be shown to any of the election officers at the polls. Any person convicted of a felony, adultery, Larceny, wife beating, or miscegenation. I don't know what that Misa word is. Mis misogynation? Mm -mm. Misogyny? Mm -mm. Mis I don't know. Uh, I don't, mis I don't, we'll look that up later, friends. <laughs> is, forever, is forever barred from voting. That's crazy. So literally they were passing these out so that um, it, it was an attempt to be proactive so that a black person could know this is what I have to do. I have to meet all of these and then I can vote. And then if, I, if I've done all these things, then they Not can't Not going to show me. up. 
So if you don't, if you didn't meet what was on that requirements list, then you just didn't, you didn't show up. So um, now was that, so was, was those, was that an actual state enforced law or this was just documentation that was provided to the public? Uh, I think it was based on the laws for each state because okay. the, the different sections are different by state. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, and while looking at this, I came across something called the grandfather clause. Have you heard of this? No. So this is an extra sneaky way, I think, in the beginning. Um, basically, it said you could only vote if your grandfather voted. And <laughs> then if your grandfather was a slave, then they didn't vote, which meant that right. their son couldn't vote, which meant that their son couldn't vote forever, forever, because never, ever would your grandfather have been able right. to vote. Right. Yeah. That's that's crazy. Isn't it? And it, it's legitimate, guys. Like it, it said that is something that truly happened um, in our nation's past. But... Now, this is not the case. Um, all American citizens who are over the age of 18 and not currently incarcerated, right? Um, everybody can vote, right? Yep. That's that's the idea. So uh, to register to vote, I know you gave us a little spiel earlier about it being on your, your website. What does someone need to do to register? Because you don't just turn 18 and you, you're registered, right? Yeah, honest, no. Well, so there are, in, in the United States, in, in a lot of states, there are there is a connectivity between the uh, DMV, your your you know your uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, and the county in which you reside that does allow you to uh, register when you uh, go in to update your your driver's license. But in most states, individuals get their driver's license at the age of sixteen or seventeen, which is a year or two prior to them being able to vote uh, or, or for them being able to register. So. Uh, Honestly, the best way to go about it is just go to Google, put in your zip code, and then just say voter registration. And honestly, that that is the best way to uh, determine how to register to vote. Uh, most most places across the country allow you to register online. Uh, if if you're at the DMV and you're not registered to vote and you're updating your license or your address or something like that, go ahead and mark, just check off the box. They'll send the data over to the elections. That's I, I think that's probably the best way to do it. And you only have to go to DMV every ten years now, though. Yeah, I got to go in like three years because <laughs> it's been ten years. It's almost been ten years since I went. All right, so uh, now we've kind of talked about you know voting's origination, and we've talked about who can vote. Um, what I did now is I talked to different people about some questions that they may have about voting, and unsurprisingly, many of them had to do with the electoral college. Um, so I'm going to play a quick clip from USA Today. Um, that gives a really brief overview of the Electoral College, and then uh, we will turn to Barrett, who is pretty well versed on this. So, All right. Here we go. Let me see if I make it play. Play. When the Founding Fathers were writing the Constitution of the United States over two centuries ago, they didn't exactly trust that the American people, or even Congress, could make the right choice for president. So they compromised and set up a system called the Electoral College, where even if a candidate wins the popular vote, they still might not win the presidency. Think Al Gore's loss to George W. Bush in 2000 and Hillary Clinton's to Donald Trump in 2016. The Electoral College currently consists of 538 electors, one for each member of Congress, plus three for the District of Columbia. Each state is assigned a different allotment of votes based on how many people live there. In 48 states and D.C., the candidate winning the popular vote receives all that state's votes, the exceptions being Nebraska and Maine. 
Those two states assigned two electoral votes to the winner of the state's overall popular vote and one to the winner of each congressional district's popular vote. For a candidate to win the presidency, they must secure at least 270 electoral votes, a majority of the 538. This so-called indirect election process has come under a lot of criticism lately, with detractors calling it undemocratic. Proponents argue the Electoral College ensures that citizens of less populous states are equally represented and stands as an important piece of American federalist democracy. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's the the idea is that the electoral college is is designed so that uh, smaller states or 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 less populous states carry uh, similar weight to larger states. Uh, in the United States uh, right now, we've got roughly three hundred and uh, nearly three hundred thirty million people. If you take that three hundred thirty million people. Uh, not counting any of the territories, Guam, uh, American Samoa, Puerto Rico, or um, uh, what's what's there's a there's a last one. But anyway, so if you if you exclude those territories because none of those territories can vote for a representative or vote for a president, uh, so they just don't get uh, electoral representation. Uh, but those 538 are split up semi evenly across. Uh, the, the whole populace of the United States, which roughly comes out to about 670 to 700,000 people per or le- per electoral vote. Uh, what that does, though, is there are some states that because of their population, uh, whether it's larger or smaller, states like Georgia, they lose an electoral vote where some place like West Virginia picks up a, uh, picks up a vote. Um, I'm going to go ahead and play a couple of the questions. Sure. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. Because I actually think that you have, you're pretty well answering them here. So, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, let's, go. let's not, let's not let the, your, your, your listeners not get their voices. <laughs> okay. So, um, actually, I think all three of these come from Cheryl. Okay. Why do we oh, currently have an electoral college? So Caroline wants to know why we currently have an electoral college. Yeah. It's it's the the idea is that mostly it's it's to uh, it's to make it more even in how uh, the the votes are dispersed uh, as far as for the presidency. Presidency is the only one that has anything to do with the electoral college. Oh, well, that, that's a good fact to include in that. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, all right, this next one I actually do think is Cheryl. The number of electoral votes that a state gets. How's that determined? So, <laughs> so every state. Gets uh, initially gets three electoral votes uh, or electoral uh, representation delegates. Uh, it's determined uh, by the population of the state. So every state gets three. That's two senators and one congressman. You then get a uh, you get a an electoral delegate for every congressional district that you have. So uh, South Carolina has seven congressional districts and two senators. So we have nine. Uh, California has uh, 53 congressional districts and two senators, so they have 55. New York is 29. Texas is 29. Uh, but it's determined by your population and the number of congressional districts plus the additional two senators. All right. So this is Cheryl again. How does your personal vote feed into the electoral vote? How is it represented? That's, uh, that's, that's a good question, and uh, it doesn't. 
uh, actually. Uh, and I know that seems weird and, and it might sound like an opinion, uh, but the, the, uh, how the electoral college works is that we as uh, citizens uh, that are voting or we as voters in each of our congressional districts, uh, if, uh, let's say, let's go back to 2020 and here in South Carolina, um, uh, Joe Biden, uh, who's currently the president, won uh, by or he he won 41 percent of the vote where Donald Trump won 59 percent of the vote. Uh, those electoral delegates are then assigned by the political party of the individual who won. And those uh, those electoral representation, they go to the they go to the uh, basically the the electoral college process, which happens in early December, where those individuals will then cast their votes. So in South Carolina, it's a uh, all or nothing state. And uh, because Donald Trump won by uh, basically 18 percent of the vote, uh, he he was given all of those votes. Uh, so all of those votes were then cast for Donald Trump. So that made up a piece of the it made up nine votes or nine, uh, nine, yeah, nine electoral votes for Donald Trump in the electoral college. So towards his 270. Um, so that's why those uh, Maine and whatever the other state was. Yeah. So Maine and Nebraska have uh, they their constitution allows for their electoral votes to be split up differently. So you have two districts. Uh, in uh, or you you have you you have four electoral votes in Nebraska. Uh, there is there's two overall votes, and then they split up their votes. So Omaha typically votes mostly Democrat, and then the rest of Nebraska is typically Republican. So you almost always see a split. You see Omaha, the district that Omaha represents, uh, blue, and then and then uh, so that's like a three one right. instead of all four going to and then and then the last two votes in their electoral college split uh, go to the go to the uh, the candidate that actually won the highest percentage in the state. So same with Maine. Uh, Maine, typically you see Maine will elect uh, three of their votes to the, or two, two of their votes will get will be given to whoever wins the state and then the two districts give give their votes uh, or their votes go accordingly. Oh, so so your personal vote counts a little more in Correct. Those two states. Okay. Yeah. And, and there, so just the, the reason your personal vote doesn't necessarily count, in your state is because you are voting in mass with everyone else in with the electoral process. Okay, um, so those are all the listener questions on the electoral college. Okay, what have what would we miss? What did we not talk about with it? Um, I, I guess uh, the reasons why we use the electoral college. We did discuss that. Uh, well, according to the USA Today lady, that's because they didn't trust us or Congress right. and, <laughs> to make the best decision for the country. Yeah, and and I think that that sometimes comes down to the you know uh, the the last time uh, the last time that a president was voted both by the popular vote and the electoral college by getting more than two hundred and seventy was Joe Biden. Previous to that, uh, Barack Obama was elected with both the popular vote and the electoral college. The Electoral College is the only one that really counts. Okay. So um, so then the next question that we've got on here, we're going to shift gears a little from the Electoral College, and it has to do with uh, mail-in voting. Um, sure. 
So here is. Normally, under what conditions is a mail-in ballot allowable? Or when would they not want to do that? Um, so uh, mail-in voting should, uh, mail-in voting is, is um, so prior to the invention of uh, uh, speed at which information travels, mail-in voting um, was one of the typical ways of voting. So even the 1700s and 1800s, people, people did vote by mail. Uh, the Postal Service did send, uh, did, people did send in their votes through the Postal Service. Um, mail-in voting, uh, currently in a lot of states, uh, and, and more states, almost every election process, um, we, mail-in voting is something that, uh, individuals either apply to do mail-in voting or in some states they will, uh, mail-in voting is actually just sent out in mass. So, uh, registered voters would in the mail receive their ballots, could then fill it out and send it back in. The restrictions on that are that it has to be in by a certain date or it has to be postmarked by a certain date and received by the election office by a very specific date, usually the day of the election. Uh, yeah, so mail-in. Can, can everybody do a mail-in ballot? So uh, not all states allow mail-in balloting. Uh, I My belief used to be, and I know that it's not necessarily the case, but my belief used to be that essentially it was just kind of for service people who are abroad. Sure. Yeah. Uh, oh, or that's absentee. What's the difference? So mail-in balloting. Uh, uh, well, so that's I think that's part of the misconception of, of absentee ballots should only be used by individuals that are unable to vote on the day of the election at the precinct that they're registered to. That's the idea behind the ba- the absentee ballot. South Carolina, the state that we currently live in, does not allow for. Uh, mail-in balloting. We don't, there is no mail-in balloting. What they've done to kind of ease the tension of mail, not having mail-in balloting is they have expanded uh, early voting in South Carolina. So early voting is open for two weeks prior to uh, whatever election, whether it's a primary or whatever. Uh, So, uh, but we do have absentee balloting, but you have to apply for an absentee ballot in South Carolina. It has to meet a certain criteria, uh, being that you're unavailable, your 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 job doesn't allow you to, or you're a caretaker, or you're a school teacher. You know, whatever whatever it is that prevents you from actually showing up to your precinct on the day of the election. Or in our instance, we work the polls. So. Correct. Okay. So we have to vote early. We we could absentee, but but I'll I'll vote early. <laughs> um. And I, we won't even actually get into that. So uh, the next question here, um, I don't actually think has to do with Electoral College or even the presidential vote. Um, so this is Jenny. Hi, Jenny. There you go. Hey, Barrett. It's your girl. <laughs> what happens if there's a tie? Uh, if there's a tie. Uh, I assume she means not the presidential. Yeah, because that one can't tie. We learned this because of math. Um, but yeah. um, like you on your show recently had uh, Emily Mayer, who's running for town council down in um, Beaufort? Yep, Beaufort, uh, Bluffton. Bluffton. And she made a comment in that episode that given that this is an off-cycle special election, it literally could come down to two or three votes. Yeah. Which 
also says to me if it could come down to two, it could be a tie. Like yeah. it could end in a tie. What happens? So uh, in in a in a situation where it is a smaller election, um, it just depends on how the town's uh, creed is written or or their basically their constitution. Uh, but in some situations, they'd have a runoff election. Uh, now this is going to be between in in this one specifically, it's between two different individuals. Uh, I believe that in Bluffton, they already have a date selected for a potential runoff election if if there is a tie or if there is a recount and a recount uh, comes into a tie. In some cases, uh, in situations where a a let's say a, uh, a a runoff election has already been done and it still comes out to a tie, because chances are, if there's only two people running and they go into a runoff election. Everyone who voted for whoever they voted for is going to vote for that person again, and it really comes down to everyone has to show up. And uh, in that situation, if for some reason there is a tie again in a runoff election, some cities, some states, and you know counties have a process where they'll either rock uh, paper scissors. Come on, tell me it's rock paper scissors. I haven't seen rock paper scissors, (laughs) but I have seen coin tosses. Oh. Uh, in fact, the uh, Virginia legislation, uh, as recently as 2017, had a situation where a one seat uh, came down to one single vote. And uh, through the recount, it was determined that, uh, well, not actually, I take it back. It wasn't the recount. What happened was a, uh, a uh, election an election board determined that a vote that had not previously counted now did count. And it brought both candidates to an equal number of votes. And in that situation, it came down to uh, names in a hat. So literally, they put both candidates' names on pieces of paper, put them into a hat, and then uh, someone, someone, I, I don't remember who, but someone drew the name out of the hat, and the name that was drawn was the winner. Oh, man. So, <laughs> so that was, uh, I guess, fate for you there. And that determined the power control of the Virginia State Senate or House uh, for the next two years. Oh, okay. Wow, guys. Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely still room for improvement in our voting system, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and we vote for a lot of things. We vote for a lot of positions, but not all of them. Some are appointed. And we also vote for some... Talk to me. What is a referendum or an advisement question? Like, are these things you're actually voting on? So referendums and advisement questions are two different things. Referendums are actual uh, – referendums are the state uh, legislature putting forth a uh, uh, an actual potential law to come in uh, that allows – as a referendum, it allows for the citizens of that state to vote on a particular matter. Uh, the – the passing of uh, or legalization of marijuana in uh, many of the states across the country have actually come down to referendums. So it's actually been put on the ballot for the citizens of those states to vote on. So in that instance, the states, uh, Congress or Senate, none of the, they're not making the decision. The people correct. Yeah, that that is actually being put to the people to actually make uh, a decision. It's almost like a popularity poll uh, that has weight behind it. So what's the difference with an advisement question? Advisement questions are used to give uh, a, the legislation or uh, the governor or whomever, whoever it is that puts forth the question, uh, it gives them uh, an idea of what direction their 
their their supporters would potentially vote if they were to, or or how it would affect the people of a state or locality. So what kinds of things do you see as advisement questions? Well, South Carolina in 2022, there was an advisement question that was put forth that requested that citizens make a decision on whether or not state school board or school boards, local school board, uh, uh, could be uh, potentially partisan. So uh, the Republicans in the state of South Carolina put forth an advisement question that asked the question, uh, do, should school board uh, election, uh, school board officials be elected? Uh, uh, should that be, yes, can, could, should they be represented by party? So it's just a survey question. Yeah, basically. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we, uh, I know I've mentioned it intermittently throughout this episode, uh, Barrett is a poll clerk and yeah. I am a poll manager. It sounds like I outrank them, but I don't because um, the clerk is the boss in the polling precinct, like they're who runs it. Yeah. Um, he and I are working the upcoming primaries. Yes. Uh, so talk to me about what a primary is versus maybe a caucus versus maybe a regular election. Sure. So uh, we'll start with primaries. So Primaries and caucuses are basically the same thing. It's just a difference in how the it's difference in the process. A primary is used by most of the states in the United States as a way to determine who the candidates for an election are going to be. A caucus does the same. A caucus uh, also determines who the primary who the candidates are going to be to represent those parties. Uh, but in a caucus, a caucus is uh, basically a a very aggressive, in some cases, uh, shouting match between individuals. So essentially in a caucus, uh, you'll have everyone in your district show up at a gym or a fireplace or a, a firehouse or something like that, basically a, a place, a public place, where individuals who want to vote for a specific candidate will put themselves into those areas and then literally be counted. Oh, yeah, they they get they get herded into corners or, or spaces, and then literally they will get counted, and that's how that's how a caucus works. But during a caucus, you will have uh, individuals that are trying to sway people that haven't yet made a decision to come join them on in their yeah. I mean, it's 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 a crazy thing to watch. I've only and so states either have a caucus or a primary or correct. Yeah, yeah. South Carolina has primaries. Iowa has caucuses. How many states have a caucus? I want to say it's seven or eight. I know. I think uh, Iowa, Nevada, um, uh, you know, and, and, and Nevada may not do a caucus anymore. I know that for the most part, most states are moving towards uh, running just primaries because a primary is 12 hours long. You open the polls at 7 a.m. and they close at 7 p.m. A caucus sometimes will be any a varying number of hours it could be one hour if if everything is done in an hour it could be four or five hours if there's still if there's difficulty with counting the number of people but like in that time period you can't leave you oh. can't go to the bathroom you can't you, you're stuck until it's done oh, that's so or your vote doesn't get count huh. well i can see why they would move to the primary um and so caucus and primary are both sp specifically for president no, uh, no. Uh, oh, oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, for for president. Uh, so there are. So in South Carolina, we have two different primaries. We have the presidential prefer no preferable pref preferred presidential primary, which is in South Carolina. We get to host 
the first in the South uh, primary for president, which uh, Joe Biden's up for on February 3rd. I'm not sure when the episode comes out, but uh, and then uh, we will host the South Carolina will host the Republican primary on, on the 24th of February, which is two weeks later. Two weeks, three weeks, three weeks. Uh, but um, but those primaries are then used to determine how many delegates will be assigned to, say, uh, former President Trump or to Nikki Haley or um, DeSantis. Okay. Um, and everybody who could vote in a regular election can vote in a primary, right? Yeah, as long as as long as you're a registered voter, you can. And 17 year olds, if they're going to be. If yeah, so uh, if you are going to be 18. At the time of the presidential election, uh, then you can vote in the primary even if you're not yet 18. Hmm. All right. So my last thing on here is uh, a Facebook question. I don't have any audio to go with it. Okay. Um, And I'm going to say that, um, listeners, if you guys listen to All About Nothing, you know that – Barrett does have some strong political opinions, (laughs) Um, but we're not going to get into that here. Um, But what I do want to talk about... She's threatened me with uh, uh, sedation or uh, some sort of a tranquilizer in case I I start to stray. Okay. Um, I want to talk about voter fraud. Um, And this is something that uh, I think Cheyenne on Facebook was asking. Um, But what kinds of things are in place to ensure voter integrity? So the... That and that's that's not the easiest question to to answer without it sounding political. So just understand that my my uh, my recognizing what voter fraud is versus what you hear about in the news are are two different things. Um, so in the United States, because of the availability of voting, sometimes it seems as though there is uh, a, a lack of security in, in voting. Uh, as a poll clerk and knowing how the system works, modernized, uh, modernized voting, I think, is, is much more difficult to actually, uh, actually create fraud with, uh, unless you have some sort of way to, to control how the software works and, and, and how you know, there's there's a paper trail uh, involved in our modernized electing uh, or voting systems. So when you go in to uh, when you go in to vote, you have to present your driver's license, which then gets scanned into the system. Now, if you, when you scan into the system, the electronic poll books that we use are smart enough to be able to determine if you have voted before or if you in, in that particular election, if you had voted uh, either in person, whether you voted by absentee or uh, if you are in the wrong precinct, like it's it's a very intelligent system based on the most up to date information on your registration. Uh, Mail in balloting is one of the concerns for a number of people when it comes to uh, uh, potential voter fraud. And I think that that is probably the one that is the most likely to potential have influence uh, that could create fraud in that someone could go through and uh, pick up, you know, they could go through your mailboxes if they know when the ballots are going to be delivered to people, uh, then they could go through and pick up ballots out of people's mailboxes. But that's not really an easy thing. South Carolina doesn't have mail-in balloting because 
uh, one, there isn't the money available to send ballots to every individual. Uh, and I don't actually think that that's how mail-in balloting works in some states. I'm not entirely certain, but I think what happens is you receive in the mail a an application or something to say, yes, I would prefer to vote through mail-in balloting, and then you send that back in. I'm sorry, I hit the microphone. And, uh, and then once the election office receives that, then they submit it and you receive, you know, through the mail again, you receive your ballot. But your ballot has to be signed and witnessed, and, uh, and and which means that you know you are you are voting and saying who you are because you received your ballot at your registered address, and then when you seal your envelope, it goes in. It like the whole way that you do vote and mailing, like your ballot goes into an envelope that's sealed and signed. That envelope then goes into another envelope that's then signed and sealed, and then it's sent back. So, you know, it's it there's a there's it's difficult to imagine much in the way of mail-in balloting causing or there being fraud attached to it. Absentee is the exact same thing except that I think that it's even more difficult because uh they're they're not sending out the ballots all at the same time. Uh, they're sending the ballots out as the applications are received for voter for voters that that choose to do absentee balloting because what happens is you you'd have to know specifically when that ballot was gonna hit that person's mailbox and you'd have to be sitting there watching for their mailbox and the ballot to go in and then to know to go over and pull that ballot out. Uh, there was a situation in North Carolina where a congressman's son was going around. And uh, people that usually when you receive your, your absentee ballot or your mail-in ballot, you don't necessarily fill it in that day. And this individual's son uh, and partners were going around and collecting people's mail-in ballots or, or their absentee ballots. And uh, prior to them having been completed, saying that they were doing a service for them by going ahead and picking them up and, and they would turn them in, except that they were then going into them and changing the votes. Oh. And so that was a legitimate uh, fraud. Fraud. So that's the kind of thing that people lose their rights to vote forever that we it, talked about earlier. Yeah, except for the guy that the guy that was the representative is now running for representation again. He's oh. running for Congress again. So. Well, there's that. Yeah. All right. So I don't have any other listener questions. Um, anything that you want to that we didn't talk about that you feel like is pertinent and relevant to somebody who might be wondering about voting in the United States? I just say, uh, you know. Even if you're not the type of person that considers yourself to be political, uh, you still deserve to be able to vote for who you think is going to represent you the best. So do your research, know who it is and how uh, how it is that they uh, represent themselves or what their policies are, because ultimately you don't want to be represented by people that don't necessarily represent you uh, or have the same viewpoints as you. It's going to happen. Uh, not everybody shares the exact same opinions, but I think in the end, the best way to be able to at least have an opportunity to be represented by someone that you trust or or that you believe uh, stands for the same things you do is y you have to vote. So uh, register to vote. If you haven't, re if you have registered to vote, check your voter registrations. Uh, districts and things change. Uh, every year, potentially every year. So, you know, check your voter registration, check it now, 
check it in two months, check it, you know, a month before the election just to make sure that everything is in in, in, in exactly where it needs to be in order for you to successfully be able to vote. Walk in there, vote, get your sticker, walk out. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Barrett. I appreciate you being my guinea pig in this new format. Welcome. And uh, for my listeners... Thank you for joining both of us and learning about voting. I hope you learned something. I hope in the very least that you are registered to vote after listening to this episode if you weren't before. And until next time, be safe, be kind, and stay curious. The Welcome to Wonderland podcast is copyrighted by Amy Bland and is part of Big Media. This podcast is recorded at the podcast studio at GOT Sound Studio in Lexington, South Carolina. But this episode was recorded at Big Media Home Studio. Any thoughts or opinions expressed as part of this production are those of the hostess unless otherwise indicated. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow, like, and share this podcast. Find us on Facebook at Welcome to Wonderland the Podcast and on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Wonderland underscore pod. Check out behind-the-scenes moments and other videos on TikTok at Wonderland Pod. And finally, check out pictures, additional information, and go further down the rabbit hole on our website at www.wtwlpod.com. Submit corrections, additional information, or requests for episodes. Please email the host at welcomenormalandthepod at gmail.com. That was good. I was impressed. I would have stumbled all the way through that. I read it every two weeks. Well, I'm, I'm just saying, I, <laughs> I'd, have stumbled, I'd have stumbled hard. Oh my gosh, so we did it. Thank you. Proceeding podcast is a product of Big Media and copyright 2024, all rights reserved.